Thank you for listening to this week's message from New Day Community Church in Vandalia. We hope this message encourages and blesses you. Look us up and contact us at newdaycommunity.org. And some of you may recognize that phrase. It's kind of like a catchphrase right now that's going around that um, we all have struggles. And even though compared to other people, maybe our struggles don't seem as intense. But the reality is every Christian faces challenges, faces struggles. And day in, day out, um, that struggle is real. And we find real answers in God's Word. So um, contemporary culture is contrary to Christianity. And by contemporary culture, I mean... Whatever culture you're living in, whether it be contemporary today or whether it be contemporary a thousand years ago, you know, uh, I don't know if you remember, but the reason uh, most of our forefathers came to this country, to this land, was fleeing religious persecution, right? Um, Europe. And so, to them, the struggle was real. <laughs> and... Uh, Going all the way back to the first century, the struggle was real because the Christians in Peter's day was facing uh, incredible persecution. So there's times when culture and Christianity run parallel. In other words, that our culture, the values of our society are very, very similar, similar enough to Christianity that we're in the majority and people are in general agreement with the same values and principles. But that's not true most of the time. Most of the time, throughout history, there's conflict between the, the values of Christianity, the morality of following Christ, and the moralities we see in the world. And that, that, that conflict causes persecution. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage, I have overcome the world. So one of the promises of Scripture, how many cling to this promise? In the world I will have tribulation. <laughs> you know what the word tribulation means? Being ground into powder. Okay? <laughs> It's not a happy word. Um, but it's a reality. See, Jesus promised, He told us these things beforehand so that we would have peace because He's overcome the world. So more people are martyred today in the world than at any time in history. More people are martyred for their faith, for their Christian faith, than ever in, in, in history. And a lot of people think, well, martyrdom happened in the, in the Bible times, but actually more, more of it happens now. And, and even in our country, we're beginning to see people lose their jobs, lose their reputation for, for standing up for moral issues, for standing up for uh, what the Bible says. No, this is the way to live. And people get mad at you and call you haters because we're saying, no, that lifestyle uh, choice is destructive. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> All right. And so we're seeing that and we're going to see that increase uh, in these days because it's actually just part of the course of history. There's an ebb and flow where this goes back and forth. And that's why we're talking through this book because it's first century advice. 
for 21st century living. So Mark did a great job last week going over an overview of the book and giving you an introduction to um, the author and the people that it was written to. And I'm just going to jump in. What we're doing is expository preaching, so we're just going to go verse by verse, sort of, <laughs> through the book and, and, and have the Bible lead us into what uh, to actually talk about. So Peter starts out, says, I'm uh, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen. Before I get into the content of it, I happen to have been there in that region, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia. I, I particularly was in the region of Galatia and Cappadocia. Those are two regions in what is now Turkey. And I was there a year and a half ago with a team from our church, and uh, we teamed up with uh, uh, some folks from a church in Bulgaria, which is a nation that borders Turkey. And this is Cappadocia. It's, I know it's a small picture for you guys, but it is one of the most beautiful, spectacular places on the earth. The weather was just phenomenal. And uh, this was on top of a giant rock. Uh, and this is pretty much what it looked like. Um, uh, this is, these are mountains, <coughs> mountainous-like things. And these, all these funny-looking peaks are filled with caves. The only thing that wasn't there when Paul was there was this road. <laughs> well, it wasn't paved. The road may have been there. So um, here's a few pictures uh, just because I was there and you can. Uh, so in these funny and they're just all over for just hundreds and hundreds of miles, this whole region. And it was um, settled. Uh, actually, they don't know when people first started living there. The history of this region goes back uh, way before Christianity. But in Peter's time, a lot of the uh, people who lived in Jerusalem fled to this region because of persecution in Jerusalem. And we're living here in these caves. They hollow out. The stone was easily carved out and, and uh, people lived in caves. They still in, live in caves today. Uh, in, but they're really nice caves. There's actually a five-star hotel. I think it was a four-star hotel that was in a cave. Yeah, all carved out of a cave with uh, hot springs. And So here we were just walking through the desert area. This is just way out. We just took off and went for a hike. And so these are just everywhere. And you can see how, the or, how ornate the carving is. This was probably an entrance to a church. Okay? Because all through the region, <coughs> uh, they were uh, uh, Christians filled this whole region eventually. Now, when Peter wrote the letter, they were, uh, they were certainly not the majority. They were the minority. But over the years, this region became fully Christianized. In fact, this region in this general area, Armenia, was the first nation that declared itself a Christian nation, all right? Before Rome did quite a, quite a long time, and so the result of Peter's advice and the result of the perseverance of the Christians putting into practice what we're going to be talking about over the next uh, several weeks uh, was that the entire population became Christianized to the point where the government declared itself a Christian nation. First one in the world. So what happened, though, is over the course of uh, a little over a thousand years, you know, things change. <laughs> and uh, just like we've seen in the United States, where a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, Christianity was this. We were a Christian nation. I mean, the biggest arguments was the Methodists against the Baptists or, the, you know, the Lutherans against the Episcopals. We were just arguing. But that's not the argument anymore. Right. 
And so just as uh, we're seeing today, it happened uh, many, many years ago in this region where eventually Christianity became more and more marginalized. And while I was actually uh, not, not too long after I had this picture taken here, I'm standing in one of these caves. You can see how, how it's carved out and there's actually shelves and one of those was a place for water. There were ventilation shafts. They were very ornate. There were, uh, one place you could go eight stories below ground. In, in a, it was called the underground city. And so they just went on and on forever. And then they could, they could close all the entrances if there was an invading army. And they could live in there for just months because they did storehouses of food. But uh, what happened gradually is that the culture changed. And 100 years ago this year, this is the 100th anniversary of the Armenian genocide. And the word genocide, how many know what that word means? Right. So the word genocide was invented to describe what happened in this region where uh, the, the Ottoman Empire killed between 800,000 and 1.5 million Armenians the main reason was because they were Christian. So while I was in that cave, I sidled up alongside of a tour guide, and someone asked, because all these caves are decorated with the pictures of the gospel. And so the whole gospel is portrayed, and the government now, thankfully, is restoring them. So these beautiful paintings of, and depictions of gospel scenes are all Christian. And somebody said, wow, these are all Christian uh, places of worship. What happened to all the Christians? And the tour guide, who was a Turk and probably didn't know any better, he said, well, all of those Christians were Greeks and they all left before the World War I. And I felt like saying, excuse me, they didn't leave. You killed them! Okay. But I didn't do that because I was there. <laughs> um, and... Uh, it just happens, as I was sharing this last week, up in Kalamazoo, there was a man who, uh, whose family was from Armenia. His grandparents had fled and uh, survived. Because they fled the persecution. And a few months ago, I was down in uh, South Carolina with our church down there, and I went into an Orthodox church, and the priest uh, was just talking to me, and his, uh, I believe it was his father, uh, uh, no, I can't remember, it was his father or his grandfather, but I think it was his father was actually killed uh, in Armenian, in the Armenian uh, genocide. So <clears throat> what we see happening in that region depicts just this common uh, uh, course of history where Christianity is the, the minority, comes into influence as we gain uh, dominance. Uh, what happens is people begin to lower the level of their obedience and the intensity, the passion uh, and the practices, their purity. And so other influences grow and the culture shifts and then we become persecuted. And in this place, it eventually ended up so that there's now almost no Christians whatsoever. So a completely Christian region ended up being completely non-Christian uh, over the course of, of time. And we don't want that to happen here. Amen? Right? Do you want that to happen in the United States? Do you want your grandchildren to live in a country where, that we're worshiping Jesus? Having this, doing this is against the law? Listen, it can happen. And the way we prevent it is by listening to Peter's advice. All right? And so here's a team praying in Asia Minor uh, for the restoration. So we're going to go through and, and look at Peter's advice. And the first thing he talks about is this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens 
who are chosen. So right in verse 1, he starts talking directly to the issue of their identity. And Christians, listen, you and I, we need to know our identity. Peter was writing to people who were facing severe persecution. Uh, being arrested, being tortured. Peter himself was uh, crucified just several years after writing this letter. And he decided to start out his letter to encourage these Christians to know who they are. You need to know who you really are. You need to know your identity. Because in the world, you're an alien. You live as aliens. So he's referring to the fact that they were actually living in a place that they were not from. They were, they, they were fleeing persecution and had to move to a different area. It's like if all of a sudden we all had to, to, to run to Canada right, or Mexico because the law changed. We weren't, they were killing Christians in America. Uh, you know, let's say it happened in Michigan and we all had to go to Indiana. Well, that wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, Ohio, that would be bad. I'm <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> Go to Florida, yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, uh, Jamaica, right? <laughs> All right. So in the world, but Peter says he's taking that image. Okay, you're living in a different land, but you're living as aliens, and he's applying it. Listen, we are aliens in this world. Okay, we're outsiders. We're we're outcasts, or the analogy that Mark used, we're mutants. <laughs> All right. In this world, we don't fit in. But in God, we're chosen and we belong. Chosen or elect is the very word that is used throughout the Old Testament speaking of God's chosen people. We still say it today. The Jews, the chosen people, right? The chosen. Well, Peter was a Jew and he said that word now applies to Christ followers. And this theme actually is a major theme throughout the letter that now the chosen or the elect people of God, no longer limited to ethnic Jews, but now all who follow Christ because of our identity that we now belong to God. According to the, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace, peace uh, be yours in the fullest measure. A few things here. We see the Trinity all mentioned and they're all mentioned in the context of our salvation. In the 12 verses I'm going to cover this morning, and I'm going to have to start talking faster. <laughs> he says, no, don't, don't talk faster. Okay. <laughs> in the 12 verses, the Father's mentioned twice. The Holy Spirit is mentioned three times. In 12 verses, Jesus is mentioned eight times. You think that's an emphasis? You think Peter's trying to emphasize something? Yes. That it's all about Jesus Christ. But all of them are involved in our salvation. And we're going to see how... Peter talks about salvation in three tenses, okay? Past tense, present tense, and future tense. So our Father had a plan by the foreknowledge of God our Father. That means He knew it ahead of time. Nothing takes God by surprise. He knew it ahead of time concerning the whole human race. And He knew it ahead of time concerning Kathy and Shelton and Mary, Joe, right? 
in you, in you, in you, in me. He knew ahead of time by God's foreknowledge. So that's a past tense salvation. And then there's, according to the work of the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit's at work now. That's present tense salvation. We're going to see this unravel throughout the whole book. Past tense, foreknowledge, present tense, what's happening right now in your life. And we'll get to the future tense in a minute. But he elaborates a little bit about what the present tense salvation looks like. And it looks like obeying Jesus. All right? The Holy Spirit's at work, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to obey. You know what the word obey means? Do what you're told to do. Yeah. Jesus multiplied his disciples and said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But don't do what I say. You know? Don't you wish you could listen, hear? Like, how do you think Jesus said that? Why do you call me Lord, Lord? But don't do what I say. You know? Do you think he said it like that? Like, why do you call me Lord? Lord. (laughs) Don't do what I say. Jeez. I mean... I have no idea how he said it. I'm sure he probably didn't sound like that. <laughs> Plus, he said it in you know, a different language. So, <laughs> but the present tense salvation has to do with obedience. It means living Christ-like. Obeying Jesus. He didn't say obeying the Ten Commandments. Although Jesus not only reinforced, he, <laughs> he, is, he is the fulfillment of, but he actually took each commandment and elevated it. Uh, uh, made it apply more intimately and specifically and broadly as well. Uh, but it's being Christ-like, obeying the person of Jesus. We no longer just obey a rule book. We obey a person. That's what Christianity is about. That's what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit's about. And then he says, be sprinkled with his blood. When's the last time you've been sprinkled with blood? Some of you guys down here may have been sprinkled. <laughs> you cut up those deers and <laughs> daily for you. Yeah, you work in a butcher shop. <laughs> okay, so this is an image we have to explain a little bit because this is this isn't common. But listen, in the in the, the people who read this letter in the first century, they knew exactly what that meant. For a number of reasons. One, if they were raised as as Jews, they knew the ceremonies that uh, took place every year. And in fact, the ceremonies that took place every day in the slaughter of animals and animal sacrifice that foreshadowed Christ's sacrifice throughout the whole Old Testament. So it was a very sacred act of worship. And it was that, that sacrificial blood of that animal was actually what transmitted forgiveness to them. Okay? And so everybody that grew up in the Jewish culture knew that that's how forgiveness, that's how shame was removed when there was a blood sacrifice. They understood that. Okay? But furthermore, even if they were pagan Gentiles, they understood that because that's what most pagan religions include animal sacrifices as a means for atoning for sin. So it was a common way of thinking. It's not common in our day, but it was very, very common. But then additionally, these people lived under Roman rule. So when he mentioned the sprinkling of blood, 
the image of a crucifixion was something very vivid in them. Most of them had seen people crucified, even if they hadn't seen Jesus crucified. And so the sprinkling of Jesus' blood brought together the image of the sacrifices that bring cleansing and the blood splattered by those being crucified together with the fact that Jesus was crucified to fulfill all of that which was foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament. And that was for, for your sin, my sin, to be washed and to be cleansed. So it's a powerful, powerful image. To us, we read it and it doesn't mean it has any meaning. But we need to understand what vivid imagery that was for the first century Christians and understand that it can have that same meaning for us. That's what it means. It means that my sin was forgiven and my shame was removed and the power of sin over me was removed because of Jesus' blood when He died on the cross. And the produce, what came out of that was grace and peace in fullest measure. So sanctification work, present tense, this is present tense, now, is obedience to Jesus Christ, sprinkling of blood, that means interacting with this powerful blood sacrifice that Jesus accomplished to cleanse me and free me, and the fullness of grace, unmerited favor and power to live right, and peace. That's a prosperity and an abundance and a security and a safety. That's present tense salvation that Peter is introducing his letter with. He goes on, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I love this verse. It's just so loaded, so packed. It's almost like Peter must have really, really thought hard to cram so much information in these in these few words, but he continues with this theme of identity where he talks about who God is. And one of the radical ideas of Christianity, especially in this first century, again, it's something common because we've brought up in a Christian worldview, but God as Father is, was a radical, transformative idea. And even like Luke said, when he, was, he grew up in a, in a Christian home, but taught God as a judge, as someone who's mad at you, that you have to perform in order to please. But Peter says, no, he's your daddy. And he introduces God's identity as father. That's the word that he uses to describe God. The second thing is the identity of Jesus, God the Son. So he's God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is God's Son, and he's Lord Lord means ultimate authority. Okay? Ultimate authority. He is the one in charge. Peter doesn't beat around the bush. He gets right to the point. He's the Son of God. God's our Father. Jesus is His Son. But Jesus is the ultimate authority. And He's also the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Alright? So He is the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Old Testament. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He's the anointed one who came to rescue humanity. And then he goes on to the identity of you and I. He says, has caused us to be born again. So our identity is that we're children of God. And in fact, 
in that we share with Christ. Because Jesus is God the Son. Not that we're equal with Christ, but we come into the like relationship with the Father because we are born again in Christ. We become children of God. And this gives us a living hope. Hope is about the future. You don't hope for what you have, right? Hope is about a confident expectation of what's to come. And so that is future tense salvation based on the resurrection. Right? And so Christianity is this unique religion where it is not based on ideas or philosophy or principles. It's based on an historical fact that Jesus Christ literally died on the cross, was buried, but then rose from the dead. So Peter's whole argument and the whole basis for his letter and the basis for these people to have hope is the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Our hope is rooted in history. It's lived out in the present. And it's looking forward to a promised future. How, to, how do you endure the struggle that you're going through? It's by knowing that your salvation is rooted in history. Jesus rose from the dead. That does not change. People hate me. It doesn't change. I lose my job. It doesn't change. Doctor says cancer. It doesn't change. Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? It's lived out in the future. I have hope. I have the Holy Spirit's power working in me right now. I have grace and forgiveness. But then I have a future. Okay? A future that is guaranteed. Alright? So, <clears throat> Christianity, past, present, and future. First Peter uh, one four says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you. So a couple of things here. How do you earn an inheritance? You can't. If you inherit something, it's because you had a relationship with the person who died. And so we have an inheritance. Inheritance can't be earned. It can only be received through relationship. And the relationship that we have is sonship by being born again. We come into sonship, son or daughter. We come into that relationship with the Father, which gives us an inheritance based on relationship. And that inheritance, this future hope salvation, is imperishable and undefiled. And that's, a, that's in contrary to everything in this world. Everything in this world is perishable. Every one of your cars, whatever car you came, that ain't going to last that long. One day, that nice, big, beautiful truck out there is going to be melted down. Rush. Yeah, turned into rust. Right? Yeah. This building, gone. Most beautiful thing you can think of. Gone. Your body, it's gone. You know, unless you're still alive when Jesus comes back. Right? And then something pretty intense will happen. <laughs> right? Everything in this world is perishable. That means it, it, it eventually will perish. And defiable. It, it can be corrupted. But our future hope 
is imperishable and undefiled. It cannot be corrupted. So what we are, our hope is in this knowledge that it, this thing that is unable to be perish, uh, unable to, 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 uh, to rot and to decay, unable to be corrupted, awaits for us because it's our inheritance. It's reserved. It's a, uh, uh, reserved as the living hope of our secure future that changes how we live now. Let me just, I think I've used this illustration before, but uh, <clears throat> bear with me. Uh, what would you do if uh, you got home and your spouse <clears throat> or your friend said, Hey, guess what? Uh, I just got, res- we just made reservations for a month long Caribbean cruise, all expenses paid on the best cruise ship in the business. You know, and we're going in two months. Would you be excited? Would that reservation or the trip to Switzerland to ski down a glacier? <laughs> yeah. Would that reservation that you had change how you live now? Yes? No? Maybe so? Yeah? yeah. Heck? Huh? You'd have a lot of kids. She's going to get busy. <laughs> I'm going to get happy. I'm like, hey, I can get, I can get through today. I can get through boring work because in, in eight weeks, I am going to be on a cruise ship in the Caribbean. Yeah. Especially if it was winter, you know. Right? <clears throat> and whenever we plan a vacation, we time out when we tell our kids. I know, now they're all grown up. <laughs> Especially when they were little, we would time it out so that they would have enough time to really get excited looking forward to it, right? But we wouldn't tell them until we knew for sure because we didn't want them to look forward to it and get disappointed. You know, there's just that sweet spot. And this is the sweet spot. Listen, knowledge of what is reserved for you should change how you live now. Because I know I have reserved for me this inheritance that's incorruptible. I I got a future that nothing here on earth can rob me of. No one and nothing can rob me of. Why? Because it's reserved in heaven. In heaven means with God. All right? With God. Whenever you read the term in heaven, think with God. It's in God's hands. All right? Now, this is referring specifically to our future hope when Christ returns and we will live eternally in a resurrected body that will never see sickness, or death, sin, or corruption ever again. We will be with Him. That's reserved with God. He's got it in His hand and nobody can take it out. And the knowledge of that enabled the first century Christians to stand tall when they suffered the loss of everything, including their lives, for the faith. And it needs to enable us and empower us to stand tall and say to our co-workers or our friends or our relatives, hey, I believe in Jesus. No, I'm not going to do that. I don't want, because Jesus is too important. Or you know what? Can I pray with you? Right? Little things like that. How do we face temptation, discouragement, depression? It's knowing that we have a future reserved for us in heaven. And we don't want to lose that future. Right? Who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The power of God that saved us past tense now protects us 
in the present tense for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. See how all three tenses are used there concerning salvation? The power of God saved us, it protects us, and it preserves us for a future uh, salvation, but it's through faith, and that's our part of the equation. All right, Bible says, "By grace we're saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a free gift of God." But faith, uh, faith is given, but it has to be received. Right? <clears throat> faith is given, but it has to be received. I have a twenty-dollar bill here. Okay. <clears throat> so. How many? Luke was talking about cash earlier, right? So if I wanted to give a twenty-dollar bill, I could give this gift to her. Can I, can I, can I yeah, but she has to take it. <laughs> she has to actually has to take it. So if she was able to take it, and I'm going to let her take it. So right now she's got twenty-dollar bills, but you know what? She still hasn't benefited from that, has she? Because it's just a piece of paper. If she didn't know the value of it, she could she could make a paper airplane. I'm fly around. You know? Set it on fire and burn it. She, when, when would she actually benefit from that? When she uses it. All right. So faith, just like that $20 bill, faith is a gift that's given, but it doesn't benefit you until you use it. Until you put it in the, until you spend it. Right? It's really yours. Yeah, I, I'm not an Indian giver. I gotta give you real good. I'm gonna take it away. <laughs> it would have been a hundred dollar bill, but I didn't have any. <laughs> Use it, spend it on something, or save it so you can spend it on something bigger later. All right. <clears throat> so you, uh, faith has to be received and it has to be acted on. All right. In order for you to benefit, that's what salvation is. My question for you is: Have you received faith? Have you actually grabbed hold of it, just like that twenty dollar bill? And have you started spending it, putting it into practice? Verse 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, even though tested by fire, may be found to the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we rejoice because we're born again and chosen. We rejoice because of the identity that we now have. Um... And we're, uh, we rejoice because we're protected in the present, and we rejoice because of this future hope. And he says, now, you know, for a little while, trials are going to prove your faith. And some people have difficulty with this, this, this verse or this idea, <clears throat> but the fact is, it's biblical. Peter, his little trial lasted a couple of years and ended when he died. Okay? Does that mean this wasn't true? No, that means he was able to endure that trial because this is true. Amen. All right. And so you have trials and those trials prove or demonstrate what your faith really is. And this is really the introduction to the whole letter because the whole letter is going to be about how to respond to trials. We're going to get into a lot of that. But trials, this idea that our present Trials, whatever it looks like, and each one of you have different trials. They produce something. What is being produced by the fire of your trial? Can I ask you a question? What is being produced by your trial? What is being, what's coming out of that fire? All right. 
Because what can come out of it is a demonstration of faith, kind of expectation of sonship, identity. Or what can come out of it is complaining or, or discouragement or giving up or giving in. So what comes out of the fire? Everybody goes through the fire. Everybody's fire looks a little different. But you got fire. What's coming out of it? What comes out of it is determined by who you are, your identity. It's determined by whether you've got taken that faith, like that $20 bill, and started putting it into practice. He goes on and says, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with inexpressible with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You know, is that how people describe you? Boy, that Cameron, he just goes around with joy inexpressible. Listen, nobody describes me like that. All right? <laughs> there are other ways <laughs> to demonstrate. I'm working on it. Full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Now, no doubt, Jesus, uh, Peter, when he wrote this, remembered when he was in the room with the 12 disciples and Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I see it. And then Jesus showed up and said, hey, Thomas, look, holes in my hand, holes in my side, right? And, and Thomas fell down and said, my Lord and my God, right? And Jesus replies, he says, you believe Speaking to Thomas and Peter, who was standing right next to him, you believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. And now Peter is writing to people who had never seen Jesus. And he's saying, listen, wow, you guys are so incredible. You believe, though, you never even seen, you never even saw Jesus. Man, I lived years with that dude. I saw him heal people. I saw him raise dead people. I saw him crucified. And I saw him rose from the dead, walking and talking and performing. I saw him. But you believe and you love him and you never even seen him. Hey, if that was true of the people living in Cappadocia in 60 AD, how much more is it true of you living in Vandalia in 2015? Come on. Wow. Wow. <clears throat> Peter's actually commending their faith as being uh, more excellent than his own. Because he saw it, but they didn't see it. And he's saying, man, you guys, you, you, you greatly rejoice. He's not, telling, he's not telling them to greatly rejoice. The Bible here is not telling you to greatly rejoice. The Bible, Peter is writing to these people commending them. You guys are doing it. You're rejoicing, exceeding. You're so full of joy and you never even saw him. You love him and believe him. And that's what produced joy. The love and the faith, the belief. <clears throat> Christianity, uh, the Christian's joy is bound up with love to Jesus. Its ground is faith. It is not, therefore, either self-seeking or self-sufficient. That quote from JFB commentary. It's like it describes that the faith, the, the joy of a Christian is, is just intertwined with that love relationship. And it produces joy. And so I would challenge you, is that the source of your joy? Or is it, you know, something that's going to perish, the truck you're driving, or, you know, whatever entertainment you're consuming? That doesn't last. Peter goes on, almost done here. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them 
was indicating, as he predicted, the suffering of Christ and the glories to follow. That sounds like a very complicated uh, verse, but it's just Peter tying in the entire Old Testament, okay? When he talks about the prophets and the Old Testament writers were prophesying about the Christ that would come, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and they were trying to figure it out. And Peter says, it's, it's all about this salvation. What salvation? This past salvation, this present work of the Spirit, and the future hope in Christ. That salvation is what all of those Old Testament writers were writing about. Okay? Uh, uh, you know, what we have to ask ourselves, well, how is that working? Is that producing inexpressible joy? Is that producing glory in our lives? It should be. He goes on to say, it was revealed to them, these Old Testament authors, and so he's bringing in the, the whole message, the story from Genesis all the way through Malachi. He says, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels long to look. So this tells us how Peter understood the Old Testament. Peter. Every time he read the Bible, he said, oh, this happened. Yeah, yeah it actually happened to the Israelites. It actually happened to the Amorites and the Edomites and all those people. But all of those stories were writing not about themselves, according to Peter, but were actually writing about who? About Jesus. And, and, and it was actually for who? Huh? For us. for us. 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 For you. For me. When? Now. Now. Right now. All of it. And so that now includes the, the New Testament as well. So he takes all of this and he says, you know what? Peter, Jesus' disciple, took the Bible in this letter. And he's saying, guys, 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 I got something amazing to tell you. All those things, they weren't just stories from a thousand years ago. Because right? when Peter lived, like the Old Testament stories was from a thousand years ago. So it's not that much different than us. He was saying, guys, this is about you. It's about me. And it's about right now. And I'm telling you the same thing. And that's what Peter says. He says, and now it's the people who's preaching the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. Guess what? I'm preaching the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit. But guess what? God's calling you to preach the gospel to somebody else by the Holy Spirit. All right? And it's about them and it's about now. That gets me excited. <laughs> All right? This is not about, you know, the Bible's not a history book about what God used to do. It's a textbook about what God does. We need to learn it because it's about you and me and it's about right now and it's about our future. It's about our identity, knowing that we're chosen. It's about our salvation, knowing that it's rooted in the past. It's worked out in the present and it's reserved in the future. It's about faith, something that we've received but we have to act on. It's about trials that produce a demonstration of that faith. And it's about joy that flows out of love. Let's close in prayer. All right. <clears throat> Father, thank you for such a wonderful letter from your servant, Peter. Lord, and we just, I just pray that everyone in this room would understand that it's about them 
And it's about now. And Father, I pray that as, as, as present-day believers, we would embrace these truths and realize that we need to live it out today as much as, as they needed it back when it was written. Probably more so. Father, I pray a, 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 an impartation of grace. Lord, if there's anyone here that has not accepted you as Lord and Christ and, 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 and dedicated their life to you, I pray that they would do so today. If they have but have not been living it, I pray that they would rededicate their life today. You know, you can do that in your heart right now by saying, Lord, I receive you. I accept your lordship. And I lay down my life. And I take your life. And Father, I pray that all of us would be encouraged to live in the midst of...